it's such a shame that it's so hard to find good, honest, legal help these days. How to dream, cowboys. Welcome back to the HBO Boys Podcast, the podcast where we recap and review HBO shows, movies, basically anything we want. My name is James. With me always is Ryan. Hello, I'm Ryan. Back for another week, James and I, ready to be the voice of a generation once more. Today we are recapping and reviewing the HBO limited series Perry Mason, Episode 2, entitled Chapter 2. Stupid. I, I, I'm, I, that makes me so mad. Every time you say it, it reminds me, and then I push it out of my skull for a week. The original show had such cool names using alliteration. I complained about this exact thing last week. We don't have to get into it again. But Chapter 2 is a dumb name, and I'm sad that that is... Oh, did you make up a name? You said last week that you would make up a name for it. Yeah, I called it the case of the truncated trolley car, but then there wasn't a trolley car in this episode. It's a bad call on my part. Oh, man. Well, okay, I'm going to give you a cool 40 to 60 minutes while we are recording this episode, and then at the end, as a surprise for both our audience and me, you can say what this name of the of the show is. Are you excited about that? Yeah, well, I'll try to come up with a, a title for episode three, and we'll see if it fits. Thanks for giving me this homework. You're welcome. Anywho, before we go on, I would like to remind everybody to go over to patreon.com slash hboboys, boys with a Z, fought for that Z, gonna talk about it forever, and go and give us a dollar a month, one dollar a month for two extra podcasts. The amount of value there doesn't need to be explained, but I'm yeah. doing it anyway. And sorry we're a little bit late this week, guys. Bit of a snafu. You see Ryan was going to pick up his mail in a bathrobe and a strong wind came in. But mm. uh, the end of the story is that after he apologized, the judge dismissed the public indecency charge. So that was lucky. Uh- you're saying I was naked. I assumed you were like saying that Ryan is 90 pounds, a strong wind occurred, and he got blown into the Atlantic. No, but I, it's it's a dick joke. P.S. And by the way, second episode down, Dong Watch 2020, still one dick in the bag. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm gonna take this one all the way to the bank. You honestly, the Dong Bank, one transaction will occur, and it will be James cashing the check that my ass. Or, what is it? What's that phrase? Can't handle? No, that's definitely not it. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 2 begins with a cold open on Perry's service in the trenches of World War I. There's a very grisly battle scene, very harrowing and kind of fucked up. Yeah, it turns out war is, like, not cool. Yeah, war is, is like, uh, I wish there was some apt metaphor. It's, uh, it's like, war is like, uh... Like a bad place where you'd never want to go? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely nothing. Sing it again. You know that song? Yeah. That, uh, Do you I, know I, it? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah, there is a huh in it. We transition to Perry back in the 30s, smoking and drinking on the early morning streets of L.A. Great way to start your morning with just a flask in hand. He's a terrible alcoholic and he loves his bogues. He's reminiscing about this time, and he's hearing the sound of gunfire and explosions in his head, which is a symptom of PTSD. So the war has created a dark character that is Perry Mason. I feel like when Robert Downey Jr. and, uh, what's his wife's name? Susan Downey, I want to say. 
I should, I'm going to say it like I meant it. I feel like Charm, Ron, Charmin Downey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love when uh, TP rolls and paper towels was telling Matthew Reese about this show. They were just like, oh yeah, he's going to be a war hardened, uh, just, just, just dark origin story. He shoots people and they don't even want to be shot, man. An older man comes by and lets Perry into the building. It is a thread factory, and the old man brings Perry to a storehouse full of different enormous spools of thread, like dozens and dozens. So he's got his work cut out for him. He is looking for the thread that was used to sew Charlie's eyes open. So a grisly affair. We cut to a radio sermon being given by Sister Alice to a full crowd of her congregation. In the sermon, she denounces the hedonistic sins of Los Angeles. Sister Alice is extremely charismatic and entertaining, and her worshippers are loving it. They're into it. The Dotsons are there. Herman Baggerly is there. Sister Alice immediately also references her mother, Bertie, whom has her own microphone in the audience. So she's a special lady, gets her own mic. I will say... I don't think this would have happened in the 30s. Correct me if I'm wrong, but sexism was more of a thing than I think this version of Perry Mason was letting on. Well, throughout the past, I think there have been examples of these kind of charismatic female preachers. And while they are looked down on by the mainstream of traditionalist Christianity, it has happened in the past. For all I know, Sister Alice is inspired by a real world early 20th century figure i'm just not familiar with the with the with the topic paula dean is my only source of female blessings butter more butter they pass around a collection plate and the parishioners are just filling it with cash and really that's what it's all about isn't it folks i mean god yeah god's pretty cool but fat stacks is where it's really at yeah god doesn't run on checks he needs some cold hard cash birdie has her own microphone something has to pay for that After the sermon, a visibly exhausted Sister Alice confers with her mother. She's reminded that she has a special meeting with the Dodsons. When Alice meets with them and she takes Emily's hand, she seems to have a strange reaction. Right. So either there's something supernatural occurring or she just knows something and is pretending. Alice promises that her church will be supporting them throughout this trying time. And then Detective Holcomb comes in and tells Matthew he'd like to take him to look at a lineup of suspects. When Sister Alice remarks that her church will do anything that has to happen for Charlie's funeral, Birdie's like, the fuck? I didn't say that that could happen. It's almost like you think you're in charge. But you are incorrect. Holcomb walks in, kind of a dick. Not as big of a dick as Ennis still, but I don't trust him. At Peter's house, Perry is begging him to join the Dodson's investigation. Peter is really dubious because their Hollywood starlet case went totally tits up, and so he doesn't want to get involved. But Perry assures him that EB is paying this time and so that they will be totally made whole. But, you know, Peter has to be dragged into it. This is like Ryan trying to get me into a Game of Thrones rewatch situation. I'm like, no, Ryan, I'm out. All right? I'm out of the contest. Listen, James, I'm only here to chase clout, okay? I'm a clout chaser. Game of Thrones is the teat that we need to suck to get as much clout as possible. I don't know what to tell you. 
Okay. By the way, Luke Clout Walker. Yeah, yeah, that's what they called me. They, I was pulled from the womb, and immediately after being slapped in the ass, the doctor was like, "He shall be named Loot Clout Walker." I, I even messed up that name. Loot Clout Walker is a better version. I play an instrument as well. By the way, Pete thinks EB's a dick. EB always calls Pete a degen, but Matthew Reese's titular Perry Mason gives him twenty-two bucks, so he does it. Cut to young beat cop Paul Drake. Finally. Responding to a domestic disturbance downtown. An elderly couple is feuding because the husband is convinced that his, like, pretty old and busted wife is, like, wow. out cheating on him. Well, so I'm just being, I'm just calling it like I see it. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's harsh words from our buddy James. Busted. I mean, I'm just saying, like, that's why I, 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 I tend to think that she's innocent and that the old man is just being crazy. Well, if this scene, I believe, proves that she is innocent because Paul Drake, played by Chris Chalk of the newsroom fame, and it will be, it's, I think, important to point out that in the original show, Paul Drake was not a black guy but in this show it is and chris chalk talking to two people who are also black in a black neighborhood and gets a gun pulled on him by daniel who again thinks his wife has off uh running amok but paul drake's like i he she was at church with me and clara you dink well it is an interesting idea to cast a black actor in the role of paul because at least in the episodes, the three episodes of the original 1950s Perry Mason we watched, there was not a single non-white actor, not even any of the very minor roles. So you would get the impression that 1950s LA was a 100% white city, which it wasn't. I don't believe it was. I think it, No. <laughs> no, I think it was racist, sexist. I think those things are still occurring today, but the 1950s was a... A special brand of those two things where it was overt and everybody was cool with it, you know, except for the oppressed. But there is nothing about Paul's character that codes him as one race or another. And so I think casting him with anybody is fine. I don't see that as a meaningful distinction, I guess. Although it is interesting because they do make it now. The fact that he's a black beat cop becomes a part of his character. So it adds more of a dynamic to Paul that we didn't really have in the original Perry Mason. The only dynamic to Paul in the original Perry Mason is that he knew karate and liked to hit on Della. Yeah, that was it. That was his full characterization. He didn't seem to have a backstory or an identity. He was just like, hey, beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, right. An awful, awful man who was good at his job. But as you said, this guy, I believe, is going to be a bit more dynamic. Well, and and apparently a family man. Well, we'll we'll get to that. Different yeah. from different from Paul. Yeah, Paul, the solo man out on the town. But this version arrests the guy who pulls a shotgun on him to let us know he does not take any guff from anybody. But while he's doing that, a wheezing individual with a cane comes gasping across the street to get Officer Drake. He goes up, Drake does, to room 206 across the street. And it's a dark room. And it turns out it's the room where Red Scare slash Detective Innis the night before, shot that dude through the briefcase, and Pinky ran off, and Black Hat is on the ground. And I was actually wondering, like, is Black Hat dead? Yep. Yeah, he is. 
He follows a trail of blood out of the room to the fire escape. This would be from Pinky's arm wound the night of the murders. He takes it up to the roof. He looks down from the place where Pinky jumped, but the corpse is gone. The music is really, really good in this scene, and Paul Drake notices that something is amiss. It looks like somebody jumped but did not make it, but there is no body here. What the heck? At the station, E.B. is furious that the police pulled the Dobsons out of church with a lie about a lineup. They actually just brought them here to identify a suitcase which held the ransom money and was found at the murder scene on Central Ave. In comes District Attorney Maynard Barnes, played by Bill from King of the Hill. Oh my gosh. Yes, Stephen Root. He's a famous character actor. I mean, he's in Dodgeball off the top of my head, but he's also in everything. Oh, brother, where art thou? Office space. Yeah, he's the stapler guy. Anyway, he's great in this. He's just like this very flamboyant, like maybe like sort of corrupt, like kind of like a like a boss hog kind of cop, but in the big city, I guess. Yeah, is he the district attorney? He is the DA, yeah. Yeah, so in the original show, we met the district attorney. He was just the dude getting the floor mopped of over him. He was only there to get owned by Perry and look like a right. fool. Right, his literal name is like Hamburglar, and he's a great actor, but he was just always there to lose. Maynard Barnes, played by Stephen Root, seems to have a bit more teeth in him, and he's there to, one, win, but two, just like make fun of E.B., This episode just made me sad for E.B. He's just so out of his league now and weirdly old and feeble. The cops then inform Matthew that they have established that he was not at work the night of the kidnapping and they have witnesses who can put him in his house, or a single witness, that is. The DA accuses Matthew of kidnapping his own son to pay debts that he has all over town from gambling. E.B. is appalled and laughs at this. He's like, This is nonsense. Why would someone extort themselves for money they don't have? And D.A. Barnes says that Dobson actually did have the money because he is the secret bastard son of the millionaire Herman Baggerly, which provides the motive now. Literally Eddard Stark over here. He kidnapped his own son to get uh, uh, his, his secret daddy's million dollars. Because this is episode two, you have to assume that's not the truth. But it is a pretty good narrative, so I get it. They arrest Matthew, and as E.B. is just like, no, what the, what the heck? <laughs> Detective, Holcam, liter- Detective Holcomb literally says, sit the fuck down, Gramps. I was like, you can talk to a lawyer that way? D.A. Barnes parades Matthew in front of the press and declares that he has charged him with conspiracy kidnapping and murder and that he's seeking the death penalty, which in the 1930s was a hanging. Yeah, which, like, not that long ago, right? No. You still get hanged in public. It's messed up. At E.B.'s office, Bagley admits that he is actually the father. Bagley, you are the father. Whoa. Oh, man. Springer! Springer! He moved Matthew out to L.A. to help him start a business and settle down, and he believes in his heart that Matthew is a good man and would never do anything to harm his son. Perry totally loses his patience and accuses Baggerly of wasting everyone's time by lying about this. Baggerly hits back. It's like, oh, but I'm not the only one who lied. I, oh, you were actually dishonorably discharged with a blue note which is exclusively reserved for undesirable soldiers, including homosexuals, Perry. So what do you think about that? And he also calls Perry the butcher of, what is it, the butcher of 
Bardo or something? Yeah. E.B. asks Perry to calm down, boyo. But it's obvious that Herman Baggerly has looked into everyone who is being or trying to be helpful. So I'll take this moment to stop. Uh, who is at the bottom of this extortion scale? Who is stealing from Herman? Is it himself to get Matt out of his life because perhaps Matt was blackmailing him or he doesn't like that he had a bastard so just is, uh, you know, jettisoning him is in his own interest. The rich man stealing from himself is a tried and true narrative that has happened before in many a piece of entertainment. Is it Emily because, you know, she was tired of her husband being a degenerate gambler and perhaps is cheating on him. That would be real spicy. Uh, Is it sister alice or birdie her mother trying to extort through the dodson's money for the church they obviously liked money we just found out like one scene ago they really only care about putting the money in the bucket or is it a fourth or fifth person how is ennis involved yeah he currently has the money so what's he doing with it did he give yeah. it to somebody? Is he keeping it? Is he showing up to work covered in gold rings? <laughs> yeah. We have six episodes to go to answer all those questions. Perry fires back at Baggerly and he says, I was only queer once. And I'm I'm wondering what that what means. That mean? Like literally? Like he just yeah. had one gay experience? Was right. it in the army? Like I have no idea what that means. Like was it is it a saying that I'm unaware of? Or is he just like, I was gay, tried it, I'm over it. He says it like it's an insult. Like, I was only queer once, Baggerly, with your dad. Yeah. So, it it was with you. You don't remember? Anyway, a weird remark. I don't know what he was getting at (laughs) with that. I was confused. Yeah, it's confusing. Perry leaves in disgust and goes to visit Emily. Peter asks Emily about the night of the kidnapping. He explains to her that the witness that has now pointed out Matthew initially said that he saw a man enter the building. And after the police interrogated him and interrogated him and interrogated him, eventually he's like, oh, okay, maybe it was Matthew. So pretty flimsy setup here. Yeah, like, that's not, are you sure it wasn't a guy named Matt? Look at this picture. Are you sure? Say it is. Say it is. They start hitting him. Oh, that's, that, they would never do that. Emily denies Matthew's involvement. Perry examines a toy turtle in Charlie's room, and it has a Made in L.A. label on the bottom, the L.A. Alligator Farm. This is the picture that he was looking at suspiciously at the end of episode one. He begins to question Emily about her and Matthew's marriage when she gets really angry and tells him to leave. Before going, Perry offers the theory that Charlie's murder was unintentional, and if it had been Matthew, most likely he never wanted to hurt Charlie, and uh, things just did not go according to plan. Emily states that she was falling asleep to a radio show called The Rudy Valet Show, whom was an American singer, musician, actor, and radio host. He was one of the first modern pop stars that was like a teen idol type. The show was called The Fleischman's Yeast Hour. Fleischman's Yeast is a company who, you guessed it, makes yeast. And at this moment, while she's describing this, Perry looks out the window, which he did also in episode one. He sees a lady in her yard pruning some shit. And he is like, okay, well, uh, Los Angeles Alligator Farm made this turtle. You like a radio show. I'm gonna go talk to that lady. Right. Perry goes to visit the next door neighbor who is a cat murdering freak. Yeah, Mrs. Trotter. She's dope. She loves to kill cats. She's talking about how she breeds cats as a side hustle, I guess. But she, she only keeps the females and, uh, 
you know, she doesn't send the Tomcats out on the streets. She mercifully drowns them in a bucket. Yeah, it's more humane that way. You fucking asshole. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. But just like, I wonder her if her eyes don't blink while she does it. Goddamn sociopath. The neighbor claims that Matthew is often gone working late at night while Emily talks on the phone late into the evening. And we can see Emily through the window and she is attempting to make a phone call, but it doesn't connect and she hangs up angrily. Mrs. Trotter also mentions that she saw Emily on the phone that night and uh, that doesn't sound very asleep to me, bitch. While developing photos at home, Perry has another flashback. In World War I, Perry is leading his platoon across the trenches and killing fields and into the enemy territory. He recalls almost being killed by a German soldier in close combat, as well as a terribly wounded young American soldier begging to be mercy killed. Pretty fucking dark. Super dark. That moment where he's being attacked by the German and the trenches reminds me of that terrible moment in Saving Private Ryan where there is a murder happening upstairs and a guy's getting slowly but surely stabbed and one of his brethren slash fellow soldiers is on the stairs like listening to it it doesn't yeah, do anything. horrible horrible and the german soldier's like shh in german go to sleep go to sleep just <laughs> fucked up <laughs> yeah so awful it reminded me of that uh, evie and della take emily to a funeral home where the two morticians pretty cheerfully try to upsell her on an extremely expensive child casket this was a very slimy scene but it also reminded me a bit of like in six feet under when like yeah it's our job we only make money off the the way we mark up these caskets so we you know we we gotta sell sorry your loved one is dead uh look at this catalog which one do you like (laughs) might i suggest this red pine casket so that your loved one can get a nice scent of the trees while they're going into the grave. Emily, not paying attention, abruptly mentions that she hasn't eaten in over 24 hours, so Della takes her to a nearby diner, and on the way, they are just mobbed by the paparazzi. Yeah, Della tells the reporters to fuck off and pushes one away, so Della's a bad bitch. Holcomb and Ennis at the police station are talking to Paul about the crime scene that he happened upon. Paul's analysis of the crime scene is quite astute, and he's able to explain convincingly why the blood trail leads up to the roof and not down from the roof. Uh, Holcomb and Ennis take this on board and then begin to taunt Paul. Because they're like, oh, aren't you uh, quite a good detective? Too bad you'll never make detective because black cops aren't allowed to be detectives. And they condescend to him, telling him that he did good work. And then they take that good work over to the commissioner and uh, they turn it over as their own evidence. Jesus Yeah, I really, like, he makes a wonderful point. Logical. Most likely correct. And their response is, like, to be insecure about it. Like, you think you're a detective? Detective like me? You think you're better than me? He's like, I mean, no, but also, like, what does that have to do with this? You guys are racist. And then they're like, yeah, good work, Paul. Now we're going to go cash in on what you found. And you, you, you can, uh, you know. You can rest happily knowing that what you did will further our careers. Oh, th- thank God. At the diner, Della and Emily are eating, or Emily is eating while Della smokes like three feet from her face. That's the that's the best way to eat a sandwich. <laughs> Have someone blow cigarette smoke at you the whole time. 
Yeah, just right up your nostrils. Emily gets up to make a phone call, but again can't be connected. She storms out, and very quickly, Perry, who had been tailing them, rushes into the phone booth and checks. He pretends to be the last caller's husband. Is like, oh, my wife was trying to call her doctor operator. Can you call him again? Oh, it can't connect. Well, can you just, what was that number again? Oh, okay, it must have been the wrong number. And then he, he hangs up. Very sneaky. Yeah, he does the 1930s version of the Star 6-9, and he learns that... She was calling the same person in that booth that she was calling at home. Most likely the person that she's been calling all of these nights where she claims she is sleeping. Della finds him and is pissed that he has been tailing Emily. And Perry claims that this is all a part of his job. Della's caricature is as close to the original character as any character in the show in fact yes yes i think it's i think it's one of the only examples of that i really can't imagine perry turning into the kind of stoic easygoing perry from the original show i can't imagine paul turning into the kind of like sleazy womanizing karate champion that he is in the 1950s show but i sure as hell can picture this della as the della in the 1950s show for sure so I, I suppose you take what you can get. Perry then calls the message service. It's it's kind of like the phone version of a P.O. box. And he doesn't have any messages, but he asks the woman there to look up the details of the number that Emily just called. At an old-timey social club, Barnes apologizes to E.B. for the smoke show when they arrested Matthew. Barnes then offers him a deal. If Matthew pleads out to the conspiracy... Barnes will get him off for the murder, and then he will only have to serve hard time and not get hanged. Part of his plan as well is to pin the murder on one of the dead guys. And he's like, oh, that's very clean. Actually reminded me of a plot point from 13 Reasons Why Season 3. And and Maynard says, you know, I'm, I'm doing you a favor. And let me just make it very clear to you. You are out of your depth, EB. And I'm like, oh, my God. Everyone's being mean to John Lithgow, and his face is like, John Lithgow is such an amazing actor, and he plays being hurt, yet stolid simultaneously so well, it just, it, like, it made my bones hurt. E.B. says no deal, and that he looks forward to stomping Barnes in the courtroom. Yeah! Yeah! I still have some moxie, Maynard. Fuck you! While we're talking about E.B., the sense that I get of this character is that he was like an old pro back in the day, but now he's kind of like a befuddled old man. Right, like, is he going through Alzheimer's? Like, does he have some sort of... I I don't think it's that much. I think he's just lost his touch, probably, you know? How? I don't know. How do you... I think the idea that you can get worse as a lawyer because you turn 60 or 70 is a little odd. Like, I just... I Perhaps... I, I don't know. Check back in with me while we're podcasting when I'm 60 or 70. Be like, Ryan has gotten much worse. P.S. And by the way, I will point this out. Last episode of, was our 100th episode. We didn't yeah, and we were up. like, yeah, we're going to bring that up. I mean, to be fair, we forget to do the Patreon thing every goddamn week. What are we supposed to do? Remember a hundred episodes? Like, that's a milestone? Pretty crazy. At their church, Sister Alice and the other church elders plan for the public funeral and eulogy of little Charlie. One of the elders wonders if maybe they should cancel the public event since Matthew might actually be the killer and they don't want to kind of remind everyone that one of their parish is a child murderer. 
Baggerly rushes to Matthew's defense and says that he is innocent and that the police are wrong in their accusations. And Sister Alice agrees and comes to Baggerly's aid. Bertie is doing the seating arrangements. She moves the mayor to where Clark Gable was previously sitting. And then they have to figure out a way to make that not happen. Right. They can't put the mayor behind Clark Gable because he's so tall and handsome. No one will be able to see past him. So to rectify that, they take away the seat of the elder whom just suggested this doesn't happen at all's wife. And he's like... Anything to be helpful. This is stupid. Fuck this. I'm on, I'm on the shit list now. Yeah, I'm mad <laughs> about it. Speaking my mind. Later, while writing a eulogy for Charlie, Sister Alice seems to be able to hear voices and the crying of a baby. So either Sister Alice is some kind of esper or she's crazy. I vote for it being the latter. <laughs> and somehow this money is in her hands. I feel like she is oppressed like hardcore oppressed by her mother and she sees the money as a way out that's my current i don't know that's my current step up to bat version of what might be happening perry goes to the address attached to the phone number that emily dialed earlier in the driveway he finds a dented car oh shit Uh, as we know from episode one a car was speeding away from the kidnapping drop-off and clipped the trolley car leaving a dent it's all adding up at first he attempts to be a door-to-door salesman but when no one answers the door he just walks on in door's not locked okay strange a lot of salesmen are on that route at 1 a.m inside he finds a young man dead of what is apparently a self-inflicted shotgun wound to the head. It's very grisly and graphic what they show. Perry also kind of picks at the dude's face and finds that he has part of a false teeth set mangled in the gore. That is Pinky, the guy who jumped off the building, and when Paul Clark went to go look where Pinky should have been, he was not there. He has obviously been moved along with the car that Ennis knew about, the reason why Pinky Black Hat and Boy Who Opens Briefcase are now dead. So it is likely that Ennis put him there, put the car there, and set this entire thing up. We go over to the fireplace, and there is a bunch of money that looks to be burned. Perry looks above the fireplace, and there is an alligator and then like he doesn't think to himself at all that they'll be dusting for prints he just like touches it yeah really channeling the original perry mason here he's like let me just tamper with this evidence really right as close to the original as della street is to her character is perry mason just fucking shit up with no regard he also finds a suicide note reading i can't live with what i've done you'll find the other two at hoover and 79th the location of the murders so this is what colin farrell in minority report calls a orgy of evidence you got the dented car you've got the suicide note leading to the crime scene you've got a alligator full of love letters all pointing to oh yeah i kidnapped the kid then i killed the other two gangsters then i came home and blew my brains out Oh, and then he also finds burned money in the fireplace, and then I burned all the money. The love letters are from Emily to George, a.k.a. Pinky, the guy in the bed who is all messed up. And as you said, it's an orgy of evidence. It is a bit 
too well put together. It's exactly what Maynard Barnes would like. Does Maynard Barnes know of this house? Is he in on it? Is he as low into this thing as Ennis is? Questions, questions. While at home, Paul talks to his pregnant wife about work, and the two of them share a cozy domestic repartee. Paul Drake and his wife Clara Drake. Clara Drake, played by Deara Kilpatrick, actress and a writer known for American Coco, The Twilight Zone, and Tracy Morgan's show The Last OG. Paul complains that he was forced to change his report because the commander says that he was wrong. So Ennis and Holcomb didn't exactly take what he said to heart. They went in and told the commander that he had to have been wrong and he had to change his report, which is, you know, perfect for Ennis because that's what he would have wanted because Paul got too close to the truth. Right. So now it shows, you know, according to the police report, nobody fell off the roof. Right. So someone just walked down from the roof with a bullet hole and then killed the other two and then left. A tale then- as old as time. <laughs> Clara's just like, why would they make you do that? And he's just like, you fucking know. Perry continues to search the dead man's home. He finds burned money on the fireplace, as we already said. He finds a toy alligator with the love letters. And yeah, they're all made out to Emily. In fact, you can just cut this part out because we already said everything. Okay. No, but no, I think it is important, though. The, I don't know if the alligator was a part oh, yeah, of the it. The alligator, yes. The alligator also has a label on it from the L.A. Alligator Farm. So it's from the same people who made Charlie's toy turtle. We can assume that maybe Emily visited this L.A. alligator farm at some point, bought a turtle for Charlie, bought an alligator for George Gannon. And I I don't know if the alligator is actually a part of the orgy of evidence. Like, it might just be George's and that was in his house and Perry Mason was not supposed to find, like, the the Ennis or whoever set up this uh, evidence house didn't know that was there either, is my guess. At Emily's house, there are cops guarding her doors to keep the paparazzi out, but Perry forces his way inside anyway. He very angrily questions Emily about George Gannon and grabbing her by the wrist and dragging her across the room, which again, there we go, is 1950s Perry Mason again. Yeah, too much. Too much. Don't physically abuse your client, good sir. He angrily questions Emily about George Gannon, the man who killed himself. She claims ignorance, but then he confronts her with the love letters, and when he tells Emily that George is now dead, she collapses and weeps in despair. Yeah, he has, he just is like, she's like, where's George? He's like, he's dead. Like, with no sympathy, empathy, anything, any word that ends with pathy doesn't have in his brain. He's just like, she, he's dead. Are you sad about that? I don't care. Perry brings E.B. the letters the next day and says that Matthew is innocent. Emily should really be the one on trial. He says that her motive was to get the money from Matthew's father and then run off with her lover. E.B. says that that's, that's no good because Baggerly doesn't want either one of them convicted and that Perry needs to drop this. Also, hey, you stole letters from an active crime scene. How the fuck did you think that was a good idea? Perry's like, it doesn't matter what I did or how I got them. Now we can save our client, which, yeah, th- this is this is the Perry Mason M.O. <laughs> right. E.B. is like, yeah, it gets one client off, but another on the rope. Pete is in the background, by the way. E.B. calls him a D-Gen, and Pete's like, he used the word. I said I, I said the word, and then he used it. I told you. And then <laughs> Perry's just like, tell him what you know. And Pete says he tracked down two Asian Americans, 
which is not what he said. That's not the nomenclature. <laughs> no, what he? No, that's not. not how he described it. And they were in the dice house with Matt that night. So he was tracking down Matt's alibi. And there it is. Perry is pretty upset with this, what he thinks is a miscarriage of justice. EB says that revealing the details of the affair and revealing the alibi with gambling is just going to make the couple look worse. Now, okay, now both our defendants, one's a gambler and the other one's a cheater. So he decides that he will be taking the love letters and burying them until he decides the best way to use them, much to Perry's chagrin. Perry also points out that the suicide house was all wrong, as you said, an orgy of evidence. The phone keeps ringing off the hook, and Della goes in and out of the room to pick it up over and over again, while E.B. is mad that she is not claiming that the name of the business is E.B. and Associates. And she's like, you haven't had an associate in years! And she comes back in, and... Perry says this is reasonable doubt for Matt. And then Della points out something which I think is important, which she says infidelity on Emily's part is not murder. Perry is very quick to say this has to be Emily's fault. She was cheating on him. Like he might have a bit of a bias against women. And Della being good at her job is on brand in this moment. Before the funeral, Sister Alice is sitting in her room with her eyes closed, seeming to hear voices and baby cries again, just pushing the, the perhaps the psychic medium angle or the batshit crazy angle. Up to you. I am going to again take the former, but honestly, if it goes the other way and they're just like demons right. are real. Like true detective. <laughs> oh my God. If demons are real in this show, that would be a left turn. Sister Alice gives a moving eulogy for Charlie, which is directed at Emily. She then turns her attention to the city officials who have come to the congregation today. And then she goes on an unhinged rant yeah. about how it was the devil who killed Charlie. Holy and shit. then she gives several benedictions. She's like, God bless law enforcement. God bless the judicial system. God bless the jury who are all going to condemn and sentence the devil to, to death for this crime. And she works the crowd into a fever pitch of religious fanaticism, and Bertie is not happy with her. Right. It was Gaston in front of the Beast's castle, like, shouting to pitchfork that motherfucker. So, Perry Mason is there in the funeral standing room only. John Lithgow's character, E.B., is sitting. Detective Holcomb, Detective Innes are also there. Sister Alice, very matter-of-factly, is, is like, how do we make this better for Emily when her child is in this box I'm not sure that we can. I was like, okay, well. And then Sister Alex, you know, again, like you said, walks up to the most powerful man in the city, chastises them openly, more so like chastising the devil, but also them. And I, as Sister Ali, or as Sister Alice sits down, her mother is like, what in the holy hell was that? That was not cool. As the funeral procession continues out of the chapel, several Uniformed police officers ambush the mourners and place Emily under arrest, the arresting officer signaling to D.A. Barnes as they leave. Della, very confused, looks to E.B. and Perry, who both have very guilty looks on their faces. So apparently E.B. did not bury those letters like he said he was. He took them to the police and uh, arresting a mother at her son's funeral. Classy. At the Gentleman's Club, Perry is visibly disturbed about how everything went down. E.B. doesn't seem bothered, 
tries to comfort him by saying now that they've saved Matthew, the case against Emily is actually much weaker so that we can call this a win. Okie doke. Perry keeps turning over the thread in his hand and laments that there are just too many kinds of threads in the city. But EB, again, doesn't seem worried. He assures him that he'll find it. And then he goes over to Barnes and Barnes greets EB. Genially, they're both smiling, shaking hands. Hasn't this worked out well for both of us? Right. EB goes over. He's like, is anybody sober over here? (laughs) Oh, we're fun. And while Perry Mason is just having the worst of times twirling around in his hand, thread that kept a baby's eyes open a dead one at that eb says that what we do we have to do for the greater good and you should know that perhaps referencing a time in perry mason's world war one past that eb knows about that the audience does not yet and perry's just like yeah i don't i don't know about any of that shit paul returns to the scene of the crime and examining the spot where pinky fell and he doesn't know that yet but he finds Another piece of George's false teeth. So Paul Drake and Perry Mason need to meet because they have a lot to talk about. The pieces are coming together. Della goes to lock up to bring a fresh change of clothes to Emily, who's very glad to see her. Della is the MVP, dude. Perry walks the streets listlessly, stops to hear a man singing gospels, which causes him to yet again flashback to the World War I battlefield recalling a time where he had to flee from incoming German mustard gas. And on his way, he had to mercy kill several wounded men so they would not have to suffer the far more painful death by mustard gas, which is like, wow, I thought from the previous cutscene he was going to have to mercy kill one guy, which would be bad enough. Nope. (laughs) Like a whole segment of the army was murdered by Perry Mason and it was him doing the right thing, which is yeah, odd. Well, c- certainly they would have died and very painfully if they had been lying there under the mustard gas. One dude is like, Captain? Right before Barry Mason shoots him in the head on the golf. Right, God. that guy's like, well, yeah, I've lost a foot, but I think I can make it. <laughs> you just pick me up. Like, Sorry, bud. So I assume this is what... The Butcher of Bayonne title that was given to Perry is all about. And the army is just like, uh, you shot a bunch of people in the army. Right, yeah, you committed uh, a pretty bad war crime, Perry. <laughs> and Perry was like, do you, how do you not get that it was a better version of what was about to happen? And they were like, it's your fault. Goodbye. So I want to go back to the scene here where, you know, Perry is trying to say it's all Emily and you know we should sacrifice Emily to save Matthew because she's probably more guilty and EB is saying like no we should do our best to save them both if possible where do you come down on that my favorite part about this episode is that when Della says infidelity is not murder it actually sticks with Perry like he yes. brings it up again when they're sitting at the uh, all good boyos club so i believe that is stuck in his craw for a reason Emily perhaps was cheating on Matthew, a man that was not around a lot and gambling the money that they had away, had or didn't have. So I think it's two things. One, when Perry says, perhaps somebody did this and they didn't mean to kill the baby. It's just kind of what happened. It was an accident. I think that it has hold some truth. 
And at the same time, I, I don't think still that either of his parents were just like, perfect, kill the baby. That's step number two. The step number three is profit. Do you think either of them were involved, though? Because, like, even though Matthew has an alibi for the night, he could still be involved in the conspiracy. Yeah. Honestly, I think they were both involved at the beginning. I think it was something that was brought up to them by somebody else to get Herman Baggerly's money. It was They were told it was going to be very, very easy, perhaps by Sister Alice or Birdie, and it just didn't end up being that way at all. Well, here's here's my problem with that theory that you just presented, is that in episode one, they are both acting very anxious and nervous to get Charlie back, and you'd think if they were both in on it, there would not be any need for that. They would just assume confidently that they're about to get him back, no problems. Mm. So I think at least one of them had to have been not in on it. And then the other one is the other one is pretending. Yeah, but there could have been a scene that we just haven't seen yet where they get a call that were just like, sorry, it's not going according to plan. Okay, yeah, yeah, move to the trolley. Right, like okay. we have to move the date. Like it was supposed to happen a few days earlier while the bad guys are trying to figure out like, what do we do with this dead baby? The baby's dead now. We fucked up. I don't know. Uh, so his eyes open. We'll do it tomorrow. Okay, yeah, sure. No, no that pretty, that reasonably answers my issue. So yeah, it could be both. It could be one. The only thing that seems the least likely to me is that it's neither. Mm. I mean, yeah. Super po- but, and Sister Alice has to have something to do with it, right? Like, Detective Innes and Sister Alice have had to have a conversation prior to the beginning of the show. I, as- I assume. Or perhaps Birdie. Birdie's the one who was upset when Sister Alice worked up the crowd to find the killers. And Birdie's thinking, like, wait, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think Birdie on the internet is described as very oppressive. But has not shown said oppression as of yet. It still seems as though when they're in scenes together, Sister Alice is aloof enough that they are alphas in the same room. And I'm sure that will have either a falling out in the past or future that we haven't seen yet. But yeah, overall, after episode two, I am still down to clown with this show. Oh, I I liked episode two way better than episode one, actually. As did I. So did IMDb. I think it was like an 8.4 in IMDb. And episode one was like a 7.9. I think it's a good whodunit. I don't think it's very predictable as to the emotions that you're supposed to feel. And the main thing that sold me is how I felt about EB the entire time. Just an old man, as Maynard says, out of his depth, being beaten down. And he needs all the help he can get. Just like John Lithgow's facial expressions are worth watching the entire show. Also, by the way, the World War One scenes were like, they were almost too good, right? Like, they felt yeah, like they, they shouldn't It looked way better than, like, fucking Wonder Woman, for example. It's Yeah, it was crazy. Like, they were, they were almost too well done. It didn't make sense. I wonder if the horse from War Horse was at that battle, too. Maybe <laughs> he had to, like, mercy kick some soldiers. <laughs> uh, mercy kick a horse in the temple. That's awful. So, by the way, quote, Perry Mason surprises with HBO's biggest ratings debut in years, unquote. Deadlines, Perry Mason draws largest premiere night multi-platform viewership for HBO's series in almost two years. It got 1.7 million views, while Watchmen got 1.5. Huh. But, I was reading this article. There are a few articles like this on the internet right now. They almost, like, want it. 
to be better or want it to have more views than Watchmen. I felt like, you know those red pills that we were talking about back when we were talking about Watchmen? Like, it was mm-hmm. them who wrote these. They're like, you see? The shitty who done it's even better. I think, actually, maybe we can attribute this bump in ratings to, like, boomer nostalgia. Because this is definitely a show, like, targeted towards at least the people my parents' age, approaching 70, who would have been kids when the original Perry Mason ran. The original Perry Mason actually probably suitable for young kids. Uh, not this one, but the original one, no. surely. Uh, you know, it's only a step in gravitas above Scooby-Doo. Like, it's just that there's an implied murder that you don't see on screen. I mean, so 1.7. How many people... I'm going to Google this live. How many people watched Game of Thrones pilot live? Mm, I can tell you, I I didn't get into Game of Thrones until season two. Uh, I wasn't even aware of the first season. Oh my God. I don't care about season eight. Jesus Christ. Season one, episode one. Help me. 2.2 million. Wow. Half a million more than Perry Mason. 0.7 more than The Watchmen. So... If that was any indication, which I'm, I don't know if it is, but if this goes for eight seasons, perhaps it has a chance to break five or seven million if it catches on. But that's, uh, asking a lot. And also, by the way, HBO doesn't seem to want to do shows like that or with that kind of longevity anymore. So I, it's hard to say where this is going to go, but what would you like to see? In future episodes of Perry Mason. I would like to see the actual court case. Yes. Get in the courtroom. Yeah. Sure. I would like the at least the last two episodes. Like, I don't want the finale to be the court case. I would like two full hours of EB redeeming himself against Maynard Barnes with the help of Paul Drake, Pete Strickland, and foremost... Perry Mason, oh, and by the way, Della Street, as a team defeating Maynard Barnes, the DA, and defeating the rap. And then I would like for them to be wrong. You know what I mean? I want them to win, but for them to, like, get the Dodsons off when they shouldn't have gotten off. Like, so it scars Perry Mason to a point where he's like, the legal system is fucking broken. I must become a lawyer Because I saw what EB just did, and he won, but at what cost? I need to be the king of the castle. Yeah, I would like to see some more performances by Chris Chalk, who I'm a big fan of from the newsroom. He was Gary Cooper in the newsroom. And then also I'd like to see more from Lily Taylor, who plays Birdie, because I love that actress as well. She plays a character I really like in Six Feet Under. So let's see more of them, I hope. I also wonder if we'll get to meet... Perry's ex-wife, played by Gretchen Maul, and his son, whom did not get his Christmas gift, and where that will come into play. Six more weekends, and we shall see. I just, I agree. I just, I hope we get in the courtroom. That is the basis. Like, I don't know, if you all, if y'all don't know, you haven't listened to our 1950s Perry Mason, we did three episodes of the original show. The original show is like 60 minutes long, and at least half of that is in the courtroom. It's a courtroom drama that follows Perry Mason just fucking with evidence for a half hour. So we'd like to say thank you to everybody who listened. If you're just listening, that means a lot to us. If you'd like to go the extra mile, you can follow us on social media. I'm James Watches Men. He's at Restworld Ryan. You could also subscribe to us on any of the relevant podcast apps. 
If you'd really like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon, where you can, for a dollar a month, get two bonus episodes a month, as well as access to our patrons-only Discord channel, and we will shout you out at the end of each episode. Which I'm about to do right now. P.S. And by the way, we just got a new patron, Branko Uskovsi Korksia. <laughs> I swear to God, that's as that's close as I could. Yeah, I, I'm sorry for butchering your name. It's a great name. You and, by the way, Hardboiled Greg, Nicole, James Watch My Dong. Not today. I'm not going to watch this time. I'm too busy. Next time. You know what? Any words you say after that that acknowledge it are good enough for me. Cliff Wilding, Hello underscore Yo, James Christopher, Atheism is Unstoppable, Chris Wood, Brent Ginn, Day 11 Westworld, Carol Andreas, Lee, Craig, John Jers, and Major Woody. Thank you for the dollars. James getting a new microphone with your dollars, by the way. I'll stop sounding like shit. <laughs> so it's not just going into our pockets buying ice cream cones, okay? We're 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 working for your, the comfort of your ears over here, and then I'll, and also several ice cream cones. So much ice cream! I have gained so much weight over this quarantine. And then join us here next week when we recap and review Perry Mason Chapter Three, entitled "The Case of the Atrocious Alligator Farm." I'll take it. I take it. If that. the alligator of farm f- appears in Chapter Three, I'm going to be so psyched. Oh my god, me too. And by the way, I'm going to be putting up a main page story time with Ryan this week, uh, and it's something I'm really excited about. I basically did like an academic essay about the mountain, the Matterhorn, and Mm -hmm. and I made it into a podcast because I researched it for so long that I had to do something, you know what I mean? Ah. So what do you say to a sad horn? You say, what's the matter, Horn? (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you, dude. (laughs) (laughs) This is serious. (laughs) There are people dying on this goddamn mountain. With your fucking jokes. HBO boys. (laughs)